Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Calling Tau City, turn on your radio. I know we had some words last time, but that was so long ago. I got your message. It was a little harsh, you know. It's still a little hard for me to hear. Please take it slow. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring tales to terrify and far-fetched fables. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. I'm tuning in to your transmissions. I'm waiting to be found. And I'm building rockets. This is the Starship Sova. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to show 584. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello everyone, I hope everyone is a big fine and a big dandy. Yes, 584. We have got, I'll tell you what's coming in today's show, The Peacock Cloak by Chris Beckett. Originally published in the short fiction collection of the same name. Yes, and we have our very own... (laughs) Amy H. Sturgis, looking back at genre history. That is all coming in today's show. I do hope you will stick around and enjoy it. So like I say, there was jumped straight in with the main fiction, The Peacock Cloak by Chris Beckett. Chris, as short stories began appearing in print in 1990, he has published six novels to date, the most re- recent being America City, and three short story collections, of which the latest is Springtide. His next novel, Beneath the World, a Sea, will appear in April 2019. He won the Clark Award for his novel Dark Eden and the Edge Hill Prize for his story collection, The Turing Test. A former social worker, social work manager and social work lecturer. But now concentrating on his writing, he lives in Cambridge, UK. Now this story is narrated by George Harab, multi-instrumentalist, singer, songwriter, producer, composer, helicentrist George Harab has written and produced six independent CDs and a concert DVD, published two books, recorded hundreds of episodes of the award-winning podcast, emceed countless science conferences, been a TEDx speaker and has performed for President Clinton, he travelled to four continents promoting critical thinking, science and scepticism through story and song. And George is considered one of the prominent sceptic, science, atheist, geek culture, music icons currently living in his apartment. So, the Starship Sova is very proud to present... The Peacock Cloak by Chris Beckett Grasshoppers creaked, bees hummed, a stream played peacefully by itself as it meandered in its stony bed through the quiet mountain valley, and then Taos was there in his famous cloak, its bright fabric still fizzing and sparking from the prodigious leap, its hundred eyes, black, green, and gold, restlessly assaying the scene. Taos had arrived, and, as always, everything else was dimmed and diminished by his presence. This world was well made. Taos said to himself with his accustomed mixture of jealousy and pride. He savored the scents of lavender and thyme, the creakings and buzzings of insects, the gurgling of the stream. Every detail works, he said, noticing a fat bumblebee, spattered with yellow pollen, launching herself into flight from a pink cystus flower. Passing the object he carried in his left hand to his right, Taos stooped to take the flower stem between his left forefinger and thumb. Every molecule, every speck of dust. Painfully and vividly, and in a way that had not happened for some time, he was reminded of the early days, the beginning, when, on the far side of this universe, he and the six had awoken to find themselves in another garden wilderness like this one, ringed about by mountains. Back then, things had felt very different. Taos had known what Fabro knew, had felt what Fabro felt. His purposes had been Fabro's purposes, and all his memories were from Fabro's world, a world within which the created universe of Esperine was like a child's plaything, a scene carved into an ivory ball, 
albeit carved so exquisitely that its trees could sway in the wind and lose their leaves in autumn, its creatures live and die. Of course, he had known quite well he was a copy of Fabro, and not Fabro himself, but he was an exact copy, down to the smallest particle, the smallest thought, identical in every way, except that he had been rendered in the stuff of Esperine, so that he could inhabit Fabro's creation on Fabro's behalf. He was a creation as Esperine was, but he could remember creating himself, just as he could remember creating Esperine, inside the device that Fabro called constructive thought. Back then, Taoist had thought of Fabro not as he and him, but as I and me. And how beautiful this world had seemed then, how simple, how unsullied, how full of opportunities, how free of the ties and regrets and complications that had so hemmed in the life of Fabro in the world outside. Taoist released the pink flower, let it spring back among its hundred bright fellows, and stood up straight, returning the small object from his right hand to his dominant left. Then, with his quick gray eyes, he glanced back down the path and up at the rocky ridges on either side. The peacock eyes looked with him, sampling every part of the visible and invisible spectrum. No, Taoist, you are not observed, whispered the cloak, using the silent code with which it spoke to him through his skin. Not observed, perhaps, said Tawas, but certainly expected. Now he turned southwards towards the head of the valley and began to walk. His strides were quick and determined, but his thoughts less so. The gentle scents and sounds of the mountain valley continued to stir up vivid and troubling memories from the other end of time. He recalled watching the six wake up, his three brothers and three sisters. They were also made in the likeness of Fabro, but they were, so to speak, reflections of him in mirrors with curved surfaces or colored glass, so that they were different from the original and from each other. Tawas remembered their eyes opening, his brother Balthazar first and then his sister Cassandra, and he remembered their spreading smiles as they looked around and simultaneously saw and remembered where they were in this exquisite, benign, and yet-to-be-explored world, released forever from the cares and complications of Fabro's life and from the baleful history of the vast and vacant universe in which Fabro had been born. They had been strangely shy of each other at first, even though they shared the same memories, the same history, and the same sole parent. The three sisters in particular, in spite of Fabro's androgynous and protean nature, felt exposed and uneasy in their unfamiliar bodies. But even the men were uncomfortable in their new skins. All seven were trying to decide who they were. It had been a kind of adolescence. All had felt awkward. All had been absurdly optimistic about what they could achieve. They had even made a pact with each other that they would always work together and always take decisions as a group. That didn't last long, Tawas now wryly observed, and then he remembered, with a momentary excruciating pang, the fate of Cassandra, his proud and stubborn sister. But they'd believed in their agreement at the time, and, having made it, all seven had stridden out, laughing and talking all at once, under a warm sun not unlike this one, and on a path not unlike the one he was walking now, dressed so splendidly in his peacock cloak. He had no such cloak back then. They had been naked gods. They had begun to wrap themselves up only as they moved apart from one another, Cassandra in her mirror mantle, Jabril in his armor of light, Balthazar in his coat of dreams, but the peacock cloak had been the finest of all. I hear music, the cloak now whispered to him. Tawas stopped and listened. He could only hear the stream, the grasshoppers, and the bees. He shrugged. Hospitable of him to lay on music to greet us. Just a peasant flute, a flute and goat bells. Probably shepherds up in the hills somewhere, said Tawas, resuming his stride. He remembered how the seven of them came to their first human village, a village whose hundred inhabitants imagined that they had always lived there, tending their cattle and their sheep, and had no inkling that only a few hours before, they and their memories had been brought into being all at once by their creator Fabro, within the circuits of constructive thought, along with a thousand similar groups scattered over the planets of Esperine, the final touch, the final detail in the world builder's ivory ball. The surprise on their faces, Tawas murmured to himself and smiled, to see these seven tall naked figures striding down through their pastures. You are tense, observed the cloak. You are distracting yourself with thoughts of things 
so I am, agreed Tawas in the same silent code. I am not keen to think about my destination. He looked down at the object he carried in his hand, smooth and white and intricate, like a polished shell. It was a gun of sorts, a weapon of his own devising. It did not fire mere bullets. It destroyed its targets by unraveling, within a chosen area, the laws that defined Esperine itself, and so reducing form to pure chaos. Give me a pocket to put this in, Tawas said. At once the cloak made an opening to receive the gun, sealing itself up again when Tawas had withdrawn his hand. The cloak can aim and shoot for me if need be, Tawas muttered to himself, and the cloak's eyes winked green and gold and black. The valley turned a corner. There was an outcrop of harder rock. As he came round it, Tawas heard the music that his cloak, with its finely tuned senses, had detected some way back. A fluted melody, inexpertly played, and an arrhythmic jangling of crudely made bells. Up ahead of him, three young children were minding a flock of sheep and goats, sheltering by a little patch of trees at a spot where a tributary brook cascaded into the main stream. A girl of nine or ten was playing panpipes. In front of her, on a large stone, as if it were the two-seat auditorium of a miniature theater, two smaller children sat side by side, a boy of five or so and a little girl of three, cradling a lamb that lay across both their laps. The jangling bells hung from the necks of the grazing beasts. Seeing Tawas, the girl laid down her pipes, and the two smaller children hastily set their lamb on the ground, stood up, and moved quickly to stand on either side of their sister with their hands in hers. All three stared at Tawas with wide, unsmiling eyes. As he drew near, they ran forward and kissed his hand, first the older girl, then the boy, and finally the three-year-old, whose baby lips left a cool patch of moistness on his skin. Your face is familiar to them, the cloak silently observed. They think they know you from before. As we might predict, said Tawas, but you they have never seen. The children were astounded by a fabric on which the patterns were in constant motion and by the animated peacock eyes. The small child reached out a grubby finger to touch the magical cloth. No, Thomas, her sister scolded, slapping the child's hand away. Leave the gentleman's coat alone. No harm, Tawas said gruffly, patting the tiny girl on the head, and the cloak shook off the fragments of snot and dust that the child's fingers had left behind. Ten minutes later, Tawas turned and looked back at them. They were little more than dots in the mountain landscape, but they were still watching him, still holding hands. Around them, unheeded, the sheep grazed with the goats. Suddenly, Tawas was vividly reminded of three other children he had once seen, of about the same ages. He had hardly given them a thought at the time, but now he clearly saw them in his mind, the younger two huddled against their sister, all three staring with white faces as Tawas and his army rolled through their burning village, their home in ruins behind them. It had been in a flat, watery county called Meadow Lee. From his vantage point in the turret of a tank, Tawas could see its verdant water meadows stretching away for miles. Across the whole expanse of it, buildings were burning and columns of dirty smoke were slowly staining the whole of the wide blue sky a glowering oily yellow. When was that, Tawas wondered? On which of the several different occasions when fighting had come to Meadow Lee? He thought it had been during one of his early wars against his brother Balthazar, but then he wondered whether perhaps it had been at a later stage when he was in an alliance with Balthazar against Jibril. Neither, said the peacock cloak. It was in the war all six of you waged against Cassandra, that time she banned chrome extraction in her lands. Don't needlessly interfere. Offer guidance where necessary. Head off obvious problems, but otherwise allow things to take their own course. It would be wrong to say these were Fabro's instructions to the Seven because he had never spoken to them. They were simply his intentions, which they all knew because his memories were replicated in their own minds. When they encountered those first villagers, the Seven had greeted them, requested food and a place to rest that night, and asked if there were any matters they could assist with. They did not try and impose their views or change the villagers' minds about how the world worked or how to live their lives. That had all come later, along with the wars and the empires. But did he really think we could go on like that forever? Tawas now angrily asked. What were we supposed to do all this time? Just wander around indefinitely, advising on a sore throat here, suggesting crop rotation there, but otherwise doing nothing with this world at all? The Seven had begun to be different from Fabro from the moment they awoke, 
and paradoxically, it was Tawas, the one made most completely in Fabro's likeness, who had moved most quickly away from Fabro's wishes. We can't just be gardeners of this world, he had told his brothers and sisters after they had visited a dozen sleepy villages. We can't just be shepherds of its people, watching them while they graze. We will go mad. We will turn into imbeciles. We will need to be able to build things, play with technology, unlock the possibilities that we know exist within this particular frame. We will need metals and fuels and a society complex enough to extract and refine them. We will need ways of storing and transmitting information. There will need to be cities on at least one planet, in at least one continent. We will have to organize a state. The six had all had reservations at first to different degrees and for slightly different reasons. Just give me a small territory then, Tawas had said, a patch of land with some people in it to experiment and develop my ideas. In his own little fiefdom, he had adopted a new approach, not simply advising, but tempting and cajoling. He had made little labor-saving devices for his people and then spoken to them of machines that would do all their work for them. He had helped them make boats and then described spaceships that would make them masters of the stars. He had sown dissatisfaction in their minds, and within two years he had achieved government, schools, metallurgy, seafaring, and a militia. Seeing what he had achieved, the six had fallen over one another to catch up. How come they all followed me if my path was so wrong? Tawas now asked. They had no choice but to follow you, observed the peacock cloak. If they didn't wish to be which is another way of saying that my way was, in the end, inevitable, because once it is chosen, all other ways become obsolete. To have obeyed Fabro would simply have been to postpone what was sooner or later going to happen, if not led by me, then by one of the others, or even by some leader rising up from the Esperine people themselves. He thought briefly again of the children in front of the ruined house, but then he turned another corner, and there was his destination ahead of him. It was a little island of domesticity amidst the benign wilderness of the valley, a small cottage with a garden and an orchard and a front gate standing beside a lake. He is outside, said the peacock cloak, whose hundred eyes could see through many different kinds of obstacle. He is down beside the water. Tawas came to the cottage gate. It was very quiet. He could hear the bees going back and forth from the wild thyme flowers, the splash of a duck alighting on the lake, the clopping of a wooden wind chime in an almond tree. He raised his hand to the latch, then lowered it again. What's the matter with me? Why hesitate? Clop, clop went the wind chimes. It's always better to act, whispered the cloak through his skin. That's what you asked me to remind you. Tawas nodded. It was always better to act than to waste time agonizing. It was by acting that he had built a civilization, summoned great cities into being driven through the technological changes that had taken this world from a sleepy rural Arcadia to an age of interplanetary empires. It was by acting that he had prevailed over his six siblings, even when all six were ranged against him, for each one of them had been encumbered by Fabro with gifts or traits of character more specialized than his own pure strength of will, mercy, imagination, doubt, ambivalence, detachment, humility. True, he had caused much destruction and misery, but after all, to act at all it was necessary to be willing to destroy. If he ever had a moment of doubt, he simply reminded himself that you couldn't take a single step without running the risk of crushing some small creeping thing too small to be seen, going about its blameless life. You couldn't even breathe without the possibility of sucking in some tiny innocent from the air. The city of X is refusing to accept our authority, his generals would say. Then raise it to the ground as we warned we would. He would answer without a moment's hesitation, and the hundred eyes would dart this way and that like a scouting party sent out ahead of the battalions that were his own thoughts, looking for opportunities in the new situation that he had created, scoping out his next move and the move after that. There had been times when his generals had stood there open-mouthed, astounded by his ruthlessness, but they did not question him. They knew it was the strength of his will that made him great, made him something more than they were. But now, he said to himself bitterly, I seem to be having difficulty making up my mind about a garden gate. Just act, said the cloak, rippling against his skin in a way that was almost like laughter. Tawas smiled. He would act on his own account and not on instructions from his clothes. But all the same, he lifted his hand to the latch and this time opened it. He was moving forward again, 
and the eyes on his cloak shone in readiness. Inside the gate, the path branched three ways, right to the cottage with the peaks of the valley's western ridge behind it, straight ahead to the little orchard and vegetable garden, left and eastward down to the small lake from which flowed the stream that he had been following. On the far side of the lake was the ridge of peaks that formed the valley's eastern edge. Some sheep were grazing on their slopes. Clop-clop went the wind chimes, and a bee zipped by his ear like a tiny racing car on a track. Tawas looked down towards the lake. "'There you are,' he murmured, spotting the small figure at the water's edge that the peacock's eyes had already located. Sitting on a log, on a little bench, looking through binoculars at the various ducks and water birds out on the lake. "'You know I'm here,' Tawas muttered angrily. "'You know quite well I'm here.' The cloak confirmed. The tension in his shoulders is unmistakable. He just wants to make me the one that speaks first, Tawas said. So he did not speak. Instead, when there were only a few meters between them, he stooped, picked up a stone, and lobbed it into the water over the seated figure's head. The ripples spread out over the lake. Among some reeds and the far end of the little beach, a duck gave a low warning quack to its fellows. The man on the log turned around. Tawas, he exclaimed, laying down his field glasses and rising to his feet with a broad smile of welcome. Tawas, my dear fellow, it's been a very long time. The likeness between the two of them would have been instantly apparent to any observer, even from a distance. They had the same lithe bearing, the same high cheekbones and aquiline nose, the same thick mane of gray hair. But the man by the water was simply dressed in a white shirt and white breeches, while Tawas still wore his magnificent cloak with its shifting patterns and its restless eyes. And Tawas stood stiffly while the other man, still smiling, extended his arms, as if he expected Tawas to fall into his embrace. Tawas did not move or bend. "'You've put it about that you're Fabro himself,' he said. "'Or so I've heard.' The other man nodded. Well, yes, of course there's a sense in which I'm a copy of Fabro, as you are, since this body is an analog of the body that Fabro was born with, rather than the body itself. But the original Fabro ceased to exist when I came into being, so my history and his have never branched away from each other, as yours and his did, but are arranged sequentially in a single line, a single story. So, yes, I'm Fabro. All that is left of Fabro is me, and I finally entered my own creation. It seemed fitting now that both Esperine and I are coming to a close. Tawas considered this for a moment. He had an impulse to ask about the world beyond Esperine, the vast and ancient universe in which Fabro had been born and grown up. For, of course, Fabro's was the only childhood that Tawas could remember, Fabro's the only youth. He was naturally curious to know how things had changed out there, and to hear news of the people from Fabro's past. Friends, collaborators, male and female lovers, children, actual biological children, children of Fabro's body, and not just his mind. Aren't those memories a distraction? The cloak asked him through his skin. Isn't that stuff his worry and not yours? Yes, he silently agreed. And to ask about it would muddy the water. It would confuse the issue of worlds and their ownership. He looked Fabro in the face. You had no business coming into Esperine, he told him. We renounced your world, and you in turn gave this world to us to be our own. You have no right to come barging back in here now, interfering, undermining my authority, undermining the authority of the five. It was five now, not six, because of Cassandra's annihilation in the Chrome Wars. Fabro smiled. Some might say you undermined each other's authority quite well without my help, with your constant warring, and your famines, and your plagues, and all of that. That's a matter for us, not you. Possibly so, said Fabro. Possibly so. But in my defense, I have tried to keep out of the way since I arrived in this world. You let it be known you were here, though. That was enough. Fabro tipped his head from side to side, weighing this up. Mm, enough. You really think so? Surely for my mere presence to have had an impact, there would have had to be something in Esperine that could be touched by it. There had to be a me-shaped hole. Otherwise, wouldn't I just be some harmless old man up in the mountains? He sat down on the log again. Come and sit with me, Talus. He patted a space beside him. This is my favorite spot. 
My grandstand seat. There's always something happening here. Day, night, evening, morning, sun, rain. Always something new to see. If you're content with sheep and ducks, said Tawas, and did not sit. Fabro watched him, and after a few seconds, he smiled. That's quite a coat you've got there, he observed. Many of the peacock eyes turned towards him questioningly. Others glanced with renewed vigor in every other direction, as if suspecting diversionary tactics. I've heard, Fabro went on, that it can protect you, make you invisible, change your appearance, allow you to leap from planet to planet without going through the space in between. I've been told that it can tell you of dangers and draw your attention to things you might wish to know and even give you counsel, as it's probably doing now. That is some coat. He seemed to while you. The cloak silently whispered. You asked me to warn you if you did this. Don't patronize me, Fabro, Tawas said. I am your copy, not your child. You know that to construct this cloak, I simply needed to understand the algorithm on which Esperine is founded, and you know that I do understand it every bit as well as you. Fabro nodded. Yes, of course. I'm just struck by the different ways in which we've used that understanding. I used it to make a more benign world than my own, within which countless lives could for a limited time unfold and savor their existence. You used it to set yourself apart from the rest of this creation, insulate yourself, wrap yourself up in your own little world of one. I could have easily made another complete world as you did, as perfect as Esperine in every way. But any world that I made would necessarily exist within this frame, your frame, and therefore still be a part of Esperine even if it's equal or it's superior in design. Do you really wonder that I chose instead to find a way of setting myself apart? Fabro did not answer. He gave a half shrug, then looked out at the lake. I have not come here to apologize, Tawas said. I hope you know that. I have no regrets about my rebellion. Fabro turned towards him. Oh, don't worry. I know why you came. You came to destroy me. And of course it is possible to destroy me now that I'm here in Esperine, just as it was possible for you and the others to destroy your sister Cassandra when she tried to place a break on your ambitions. In order to achieve her destruction, you found a way of temporarily modifying that part of the original algorithm that protected the seven of you from physical harm. I assume you have a weapon with you now that works in the same way. I guess it's hidden somewhere in that cloak. "'whispered the cloak through Tawas's skin. "'Another duck had alighted on the water, "'smaller and differently colored to the ones that were already there. "'It had black wings and a russet head. "'Fabro picked up his binoculars and briefly observed it "'before laying them down again "'and turning once more to his recalcitrant creation. "'Be that as it may,' he said, "'I certainly wasn't led to expect an apology.' They told me the six of you set out in this direction, armed to the teeth, and in a great fury. You had a formidable space fleet with you, they said, and huge armies at your back. They told me that cloak of yours was fairly fizzing and sparking with pent-up energy. They said that it turned all the air around you into a giant lens, so that you were greatly magnified and seemed to your followers to be a colossus blazing with fire, striding out in front of them as they poured through the interplanetary gates. Tawas snatched a stone up from the beach and flung it out over the water. You are allowing yourself to be put on the defensive, warned the peacock cloak. But remember that he has no more power than you. In fact, he has far less. Thanks to your foresight in creating me, you are the one who is protected, not him. And unlike him, you are armed. Tawas turned to face Fabro. You set us inside this world, he said, then turned away and left us to it. And that was fine. That was the understanding from the beginning. That was your choice and ours. But now, when it suits you because you are growing old, you come wandering in to criticize what we have achieved. What right do you have to do that, Fabro? You were absent when the hard decisions were being made. How can you know that you would have done anything different yourself? When have I criticized you? When have I claimed I would have done something different? Fabro gave a short laugh. Think, Tawas, think. Stop indulging your anger and think for a moment about the situation we are in. 
How could I say that I would have done something different? What meaning could such a claim possibly have when you and I were one and the same person at the beginning of all this? We began as one person, but we are not one person now. Origins are not everything. Fabro looked down at his hands, large and long-fingered as Tawas's were. No, he said, I agree. It must be so. Otherwise, there would only ever be one thing. You made your choice, Tawas said. You should have stuck to it and stayed outside. Hence the armies, hence the striding like a colossus at their head, hence the plan to seek me out and destroy me. Fabro looked up at Tawas with an expression that was a half-frown and half a smile. Yes, Tawas said. Hence all those things. Fabro nodded. But where are the armies now? He asked. Where is the striding colossus? Where is this we you speak about? An awful lot of the energy has dissipated, has it not? The nearer you got to me, the faster it all fell away. They've all come back to me, you know. Your armies, your brothers, your sisters. They have all come to me and asked to become part of me once again. Some of the eyes on the cloak glanced inquiringly upward at Tawas's face. Others remained fixed on Fabro, who had lifted his binoculars and was once again looking at bird life out on the lake. Fire the gun, and you will be Fabro. The peacock cloak told its master. You will be the one to whom the armies and the five have all returned. Your apparent isolation, your apparent diminishment is simply an artifact of there being two of you here, two rival versions of the original Fabro. But you are the one I shield and not him. You are the one with the weapon. Fabro laid down his field glasses and turned towards the man who still stood stiffly apart from him. Come, Talos, he coaxed gently, patting the surface of the log beside him. Come and sit down. I won't bite. I promise. It's almost the end, after all. Surely we're both too old, and it's too late in the day for us to be playing this game. Talos picked up another stone and flung it out into the lake. The ripples spread over the smooth surface. Quack, quack went the ducks near to where it fell, and one of them fluttered its wings and half flew a few yards further off, scrabbling at the surface with its feet. The armies are irrelevant, Tawas said. The five are irrelevant, you know that. For these purposes, they are simply fields of force twisting and turning between you and me. The important thing is not that they have come back to you, no. The important thing is that I have not... Fabro watched his face and did not speak. I gave their lives purpose, Tawas went on, beginning to pace restlessly up and down. I gave them progress. I gave them freedom. I gave them cities and nations. I gave them hope. I gave them something to believe in and somewhere to go. You just made a shell. You made a clockwork toy. It was me, through my rebellion, that turned it into a world. Why else did they all follow me? He looked around for another stone, found a particularly big one, and lobbed it out even further across the lake. It sent a whole flock of ducks squawking into the air. Please sit down, Tawas. I would really like you to sit with me. Tawas did not respond. Fabro shrugged and looked away. Why exactly do you think they followed you? He asked after a short time. Because I was in your image, but I wasn't you, Tawas answered at once. I was like you, but at the same time, I was one of them. Because I stood up for this world as a world in its own right, belonging to those who lived in it, and not simply as a plaything of yours. Fabro nodded. Which was what I wanted you to do, he said. The day was moving into evening. The eastern ridge of peaks across the water glowed gold from the sun that was setting opposite them in the west. After the sun sets, Fabro calmly said, the world will end. Everyone has come back to me. It's time that you and I brought things to a close. Tawas was caught off guard. So little time. It seemed he had miscalculated somewhat, not having the benefit of the Olympian view that Fabro had enjoyed until recently, looking in from outside of constructive thought. He had not appreciated that the end was quite as close as that but he was not going to show his surprise. "'I suppose you're going to lecture me,' he said, "'about the suffering I caused with my wars.' As he spoke, he was gathering up stones from the beach, hastily, almost urgently, as if they had some vital purpose. "'I suppose you're going to go on about all the children whose parents I took from them,' he said. 
He threw a stone. Splash. Quack. And the rapes that all the sides perpetrated, he said, throwing a stone again. And the tortures, throwing in another stone. And the massacres. He had run out of stones. He turned angrily towards Fabro. I suppose you want to castigate me for turning skilled farmers and hunters and fishermen into passive workers in dreary city streets, spending their days manufacturing things that they didn't understand, and their evenings staring at images on screens manufactured for them by someone else. He turned away, shaking his head, looking around vaguely for more stones. I used to think about you looking in from outside, he said. When we had wars, when we were industrializing and getting people off the land, all those difficult times, I used to imagine you judging me, clucking your tongue, shaking your head. But you try and bring progress to a world without any adverse consequences for anyone. You just try it. Come on, Taos, Fabro begged him. Sit with me. You know you're not really going to destroy me. You know you can't really reverse the course that this world, like any world, must take. It isn't only your armies that have fallen away from you, Talos. It's your own steely will. It has no purpose anymore. But the cloak offered another point of view. Destroy Fabro, and you will become him. It silently whispered. Then you can put back the clock itself. Talos knew it was true. Without Fabro to stop him, he could indeed postpone the end. Not forever, but for several more generations. And he could rule Esperine during that time as he had never ruled before, with no Fabro outside, no one to look in and judge him. The cloak was right. He would become Fabro. He would become Fabro and Taos both at once. It was possible. And what was more, it had been his reason for coming here in the first place. He glanced down at Fabro. He looked quickly away again across the lake. Ten whole seconds passed. Then Tawas reached slowly for the clasp of the peacock cloak. He hesitated. He lowered his hand. He reached for the clasp again. His fingers were trembling because of the contradictory signals they were receiving from his brain. But finally, he unfastened the cloak, removing it slowly and deliberately at first, and then suddenly flinging it away from him, as if he feared it might grab hold and refuse to let go. It snagged on a branch of a small oak tree and hung there, one corner touching the stony ground. Still, its clever eyes darted about, green and gold and black. It was watching Tawas, watching Fabro. As ever, it was observing everything, analyzing everything, evaluating options and possibilities. But yet, as is surely proper in a garment hanging from a tree, it had no direction of its own. It had no separate purpose. Across the lake, the eastern hills shone. There were sheep up there grazing, bathed in golden light that picked them out against the mountainside. But the hills on the western side were also making their presence felt, for their shadows were reaching out like long fingers over the two small figures by the lake, one standing, one seated on the log, neither one speaking. Without his cloak and a simple white shirt and white breeches, Tawas looked even more like Fabro. A stranger could not have told him apart. A flock of geese came flying in from a day of grazing lower down the valley. They honked peaceably to one another as they splashed down on the softy, luminous water. When I was walking up here, Tawas said at last, I met three children, and they reminded me of some other children I saw once, or glimpsed anyway when I was riding past in a tank. It was in the middle of a war, and I didn't pay much heed to them at the time. I was too busy listening to reports and giving orders, but for some reason, they stuck in my mind. He picked up a stone and tossed it half-heartedly out into the lake. The ruined home lay behind them, he went on. And in the ruins, most probably, lay the burnt corpses of their parents. Not that their parents would have been combatants or anything. It was just that their country, their sleepy land of Meadow Lee, had temporarily become the square on the chessboard that the great game was focused on, the place where the force fields happened to intersect. 
Pretty soon the focal point would be somewhere else and the armies would move on from Meadow Lee and forget all about it until the next time. But those children wouldn't forget, would they? Not while they still lived. That day would stain and darken their entire lives like the smoke stained and darkened their pretty blue sky. What could be worse when you think about it than filling up a small mind with such horrors? That, in a way, is also creating a world. It is creating a small but perfect hell. He snatched up yet another stone, but with a swift, graceful movement, Fabro had jumped up and grasped Tawas's wrist to stop him throwing it. Enough, Tawas. Enough. The rebellion is over. The divisions you brought about have all been healed. The killed and the killers, the tortured and the torturers, the enslaved and the enslavers, all are reconciled. All have finally come back. Everyone but me. Tawas let the stone fall to the ground. His creator released his hand, sat down again on the log, and once again patted the space beside him. Tawas looked at Fabro, and at the log, and back at Fabro again. And finally, he sat down. The two of them were completely in shadow now, had become shadows themselves. The smooth surface of the lake still glowed with soft pinks and blues, but the birds on its surface had become shadows too, warm living shadows, softly murmuring to one another in their various watery tongues, suspended between the glowing lake and the glowing sky. And more shadow was spreading up the hillside opposite, engulfing the sheep one after another, taking them from golden prominence to peaceful obscurity. Soon only the peaks still dipped into the stream of sunlight that was pouring horizontally far above the heads of the two men. Everyone but you, Fabro mildly agreed, reaching down for his binoculars once more so he could look at some unusual duck or other that he'd noticed out on the water. Tawas glanced across at his peacock cloak dangling from its tree. That tawdry thing, he suddenly thought. Why don't I choose to hide myself in that? The cloak was shimmering and glittering, giving off its own light in the shadow, and its eyes were still brightly shining, as if it was attempting to be a rival to those last brilliant rays of sunlight, or to outglow the softly glowing lake. It was all that was left of Tawas's empire, his will, his power. He turned to Fabro. Don't get the wrong idea, he began. I don't in any way regret what... Then he broke off. He passed his still trembling hand over his face. I'm sorry, Fabro, he said in a completely different voice. I've messed it all up, haven't I? I've been a fool. I've spoiled everything. Fabro lowered his binoculars and patted Tawas on the hand. Well, maybe you have. I'm not sure. But you're quite right, you know, that I did just create a shell, and it was your rebellion that made it a world. Deep down, I always knew that rebellion was necessary. I must have done, mustn't I, since whatever you did came from somewhere inside me. Rebellion was necessary. I just hoped that in Esperine, it would somehow take a different path. Only the highest tips of the peaks were still shining gold. They were like bright orange light bulbs. And then, one by one, they went out. And there you go. Big thank you, gentlemen, to George Harab and Chris Beckett for that. Oh, hey, indeedy. Thank you so much. Well, gentlemen, thank you. Now, you've just listened to an advert there, but get rid of those adverts if you want by popping over and helping, helping struggling Starships over in District Wonders. Keep going. Yes, that would be an honour if you could kind of support it. If you want to come to the Patreon, that would be great. Or just going through PayPal on the front of the website. Just help out. It's been some difficult months, a couple of months there, three months where it's just been falling away. And like I say, we, we get rid of the ads, which is always a kind of blessing. So that would be fantastic. And you support her and keep her going. And that is the main thing. So let's get into Amy H. Sturgis Ames. Hello, my friends. It's time for another look back into genre history. 
way, way back in 2008. Okay, that's not <laughs> that long ago in terms of history, but in podcasting years, that's a really long time. Back in 2008, I was invited to narrate、uh, the second story that I would narrate for Starship Sofa. That was for the episode. Thirty-three. That's July two thousand eight, and I was so thrilled to accept this invitation. Of course, in part, being invited to do another story meant that I must not have completely messed up my first narration. So I was very happy about that. But even more importantly, I was excited because of the author whose work I was invited to narrate. I read a modest proposal by Vonda N. McIntyre, and Vonda N. McIntyre, well, she had, and will continue to have, a mighty impact on me. And I'm sorry to say that Vonda McIntyre passed on on April first, twenty nineteen, of pancreatic cancer. She was seventy years old. And today, I would just like to talk about her and her career, and remember her, and pay tribute to her. She is perhaps best known for her groundbreaking feminist science fiction. She began publishing science fiction before I was born, with a story called Breaking Point in 1970, and that was the same year she attended the Clarion Workshop. Her novelette of mist and grass and sand. Which was published in 1973, won her first Nebula Award, and would later be transformed into her classic novel Dream Snake, which was published in 1978, and that went on to win not only the Nebula Award for Best Novel but also the Hugo and the Locus. Here is the official description of that great novel: "Quote in a far future." Post-Holocaust Earth, a young healer named Snake travels the world, healing the sick and injured with her companion, the alien Dream Snake. But she is being pursued. Many of her short works deserve mention. The Hugo and Nebula Award finalists Wings in 1973 and Aztecs in 1977. The Nebula Award finalist Transit in 1983, the Hugo Award finalist Fire Flood in 1980, and the Sturgeon, Tiptree, and Nebula Award finalist Little Faces in 2005. Some of her short work can be found now in the collection Fire Flood and Other Stories. Her first novel was The Exile Waiting, which appeared in 1975. She also published others: Superluminal in 1983, Barbary in 1986, The Moon and the Sun, published in 1997, went on to win the Nebula Award. And right now, a movie based on that novel, The King's Daughter, is awaiting release. It is finished. In fact, IMDb says that it should be coming out later this year, 2019. And Pierce Brosnan is the star of that film. Here is the official description of *The Moon and the Sun*, and I highly recommend checking it out. Quote, In seventeenth-century France, Louis the Fourteenth rules with flamboyant ambition. In his domain, wealth and beauty take all. Frivolity begets cruelty. Science and alchemy collide. From the Hall of Mirrors to the vermin-infested attics of the Chateau at Versailles, courtiers compete to please the king, sacrificing fortune, principles, and even the sacred bond between brother and sister. By the fiftieth year of his reign, Louis the Fourteenth has made France the most powerful state in the Western world. Yet the Sun King's appetite for glory knows no bounds. In a bold stroke, he sends his natural philosopher on an expedition to seek the source of immortality, the rare, perhaps mythical, sea monsters. For the glory of his god, his country, and his king, Father Yves de la Croix returns with his treasure: one heavy shroud packed in ice, and a covered basin that imprisons a shrieking creature. End quote. Mermaids. If you're looking for a starting place for 
reading Vonda McIntyre, either The Moon and the Sun or the previously mentioned Dream Snake are great entrance points. She also wrote a space opera series called Starfarers, including Starfarers in 1989, Transition in 1991, Metaphase in 1992, and Nautilus in 1994. She co-edited the feminist science fiction anthology Aurora Beyond Equality in 1976 with Susan J. Anderson, and she also edited the Nebula Awards Showcase 2004. Her science fiction credentials were very, very real. She had a great grasp of history and of literature, but she also had scientific cred. She graduated with honors in biology from the University of Washington and did graduate work in genetics. She was, in every way, the real deal. And personally, I'd like to give a shout-out for the way that I came to know Vonda McIntyre and her writing. I was a Star Trek fan from the womb, I think. <laughs> That's the first thing I can ever remember seeing on television was Star Trek, and I loved Star Trek so much. And then I saw Star Wars the summer before I entered kindergarten, and I made the leap from introductory children's books, learning how to read, to full-fledged reading on my own, in many ways through media tie-ins and novelizations. I would read novelizations with the dictionary at hand. I wanted more of the stories of the things that I loved. And beyond being brilliant in her own right with her original fiction, Vonda McIntyre also wrote amazing tie-ins and novelizations. So, for example, when I was nine years old, Pocket Books put out its second tie-in novel for Star Trek The Original Series, and that was called The Entropy Effect. Tor.com has noted in its obituary for Vonda McIntyre that this was a much-beloved novel, and it really was. It still is. I was the kind of kid who just buried myself in these books, and so if my parents said, oh, we need to stop by the store on the way home, I would sort of fix their feet in my peripheral vision and then kind of, you know, robot-like follow along behind with the book up in front of my face <laughs> and occasionally, you know, bounce off of other people or inanimate objects and, you know, vaguely apologize and just keep going, uh, following them reading the entire time, and one of the books I had stuffed in my face uh, was The Entropy Effect. I read that book over and over. Here is the official description. The starship Enterprise is summoned to transport a dangerous criminal to rehabilitation. The brilliant physicist, Dr. Georges Mordreau, who is accused of promising to send people back in time, then killing them instead. But when a crazed Mordreau escapes, he inexplicably bursts onto the bridge and murders Captain Kirk before the crew's eyes. Now Spock must journey back in time to avert the disaster before it occurs. But more is at stake than Kirk's life. Mordreau's experiments have thrown the universe into chaos, and Spock is fighting time itself to keep the very fabric of reality from unraveling. End quote. This is also known as the book in which Mr. Sulu has a really awesome mustache on the cover. Very, very 1981. So there's time travel and singularities and all kinds of intrigue and fascinating science stuff. But what really makes this novel stand out is something that McIntyre did very, very well. Create fully-fledged characters, often women, uh, so in this one particular, we have Mandala Flynn. She is just an amazing character. Uh, Lieutenant Commander Flynn is assigned to the USS Enterprise as Chief of Security. And during her time on board the Enterprise, she becomes known to be efficient, constantly drilling those under her command. And she is friends with Mr. Sulu. Speaking of Mr. Sulu, Vonda McIntyre is the one who gave Mr. Sulu a first name, Hikaru, which would go on to become film canon with The Undiscovered Country. 
So you have these great characters, lots of women characters that she brings into a place where there weren't as many women characters at the time, but also deep insights into the characters I already knew and loved. Another Star Trek novel she wrote was Enterprise, The First Adventure. She also wrote the novelizations of Star Trek III, The Search for Spock, Star Trek IV, The Voyage Home, and, yes, the best film novelization ever. <laughs> I'll fight you on that, people. Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. If you didn't like Star Trek II, read the novel. If you loved Star Trek II, read the novel. I fall fully into the I love Star Trek II camp, and yet the novelization enhances the experience tremendously. What an amazing achievement this was. She brought motivations to characters, full-fledged backstories, three-dimensional arcs. She raised the stakes in a film story that already had incredibly high stakes and showed lasting repercussions for the things that happened in the film. We get Lieutenant Savick in a way we never saw her in live action. We see the scientists at the Genesis Research Station given tremendous agency and importance and empathy. We see Khan's extended family as well in full detail. What an achievement this was. The novelization came out a year after the entropy effect, and yes, I can still feel its impact today. She also wrote tie-ins for other franchises. In 1995, she wrote Star Wars The Crystal Star. Quote, Princess Leia's children have been kidnapped. Along with Chewbacca and R2-D2, she follows the kidnapper's trail to a disabled refugee ship from which children are also missing. Here she learns of a powerful Imperial officer with a twisted plan to restore the Empire. Meanwhile, Han Solo and Luke Skywalker are cut off from Leia by the death of a nearby star, which has caused a disruption in the Force. End quote. You can see here again her emphasis on fully-fledged women characters putting Leia in the spotlight. And there really wasn't another Star Wars novel. This is now considered part of the Legends category, no longer canon, that quite did things the way McIntyre did. It got timey-wimey and wibbly-wobbly, if I may cross my streams there. She was able to bring new insights to pre-existing franchises while also telling really remarkable original stories of her own. McIntyre was one of the founders of Clarion West, and as tributes pour in from across the web, one of the repeated comments is how very patient and generous and supportive she was to emerging writers. She won the SFWA's Service Award in 2010 and the Science Fiction Research Association's Clarison Award in 2015. She was also a guest of honor at Sasquan, the 2015 Worldcon. She was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer in February of 2019, and knowing she didn't have long, she wrote with a passion, and thanks to her relentless drive, she managed to complete her final novel, Curve of the World, shortly before she passed. So we do have more of Vonda McIntyre to look forward to. Her last gift to us. Well, that's perhaps not exactly true, because in mentoring so many writers... McIntyre really made sure that her career, her influence, her light is a gift that we'll keep on giving. I'd like to end by reading a couple of comments posted by another favorite author of mine, Fonda Lee, upon learning of Vonda McIntyre's death. 
She tweeted, quote, I'm crushed by this. Vonda was one of the first pros to welcome me into the field. I was a nobody debut author and on a panel with her at Sasquan in 2015. Afterward, she invited me to breakfast on her guest of honor stipend. My first encounter with Vonda was as a teen reading the novelization of Star Trek II before going on to discover her other Star Trek novels, then Dream Snake. I'd just put out my first novel and was starstruck that the guest of honor was sitting down to chat with me and ask how it was going. That was Vonda. She was unassuming, welcoming, soft-spoken, smart, and humble. She reached out to invite me to crash in her guest room when I was in Seattle for ECCC. She remembered new authors being short on funds. True. End quote. And Fonda Lee goes on later to tweet, quote, After she was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer and given only a few months to live, she continued working on her final book, looking up occasionally to congratulate people on the Launchpad alumni list for their story sales. She was writing up until the end. I want to be like her. End quote. I thought that was a lovely tribute and wanted to include that. And I want to thank you for allowing me to share my thoughts on Vonda McIntyre and the impact she had on me. If you haven't read her work, I highly recommend that you do so. And if you have, well, now's time to read more or to read again. I look forward to joining you again very soon for something completely different when together we take another look back at genre history. Thank you. Amy, you are one of those angels that George coos from, from the heavens. Oh, Amy, thank you so much indeedy. Oh, it's a pleasure. So that is Starship Sova, tucked up and put to bed. 580, oh, come on, tell us what it was before I look. Oh, I had to look. Four, eight, 584. And just as a quick note of passing interest, Tales to Terrify is looking for a new editor. Yes, if you want to take up that mantle, the very... Oh, we're going to lose him. Oh, it's just heartbreaking. Scott Silk is leaving, stepping down as the editor from Tales to Terrify. So that place needs to be filled. And we just want a huge thank you to Scott for kind of all the years of service and helping that show become what it is. You know what I mean? Massive. If you want to take on that role as editor... For that podcast, drop us a line at districtofwonders at gmail.com. Until next week, I'd just like to say good night from me. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.
books were rocket ships, I'd need only the will to fly. I'm still building word by word, and I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there. I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there by and by. 